Hi friends, welcome to the St. Anne Parish Podcast, where we seek to bring people to Jesus, form disciples, and send them to transform the world. We hope you enjoy this episode. A little bit to just unpack kind of where we were yesterday, right? We talked about um, what happens when salt loses its taste and how we come back to our first love. Right, and how in a renewed encounter, that's really the first step in the renewal that the world needs, but also the renewal that the church needs uh, and the renewal that we need in our life and how God is waiting for us in the Eucharist to help us find that first love. How that's the place that Jesus is with us to the close of the age, the place he wants to be particularly available to us to transform us, to make us more of who we're supposed to be and more of who we were intended to be from the beginning. Uh, and then we had an opportunity to encounter Jesus in the Eucharist. I want to go from there and, and kind of build on that tonight. And just for you to understand a little bit where I come from with these talks, like when baseball players go to spring training, they work on fundamentals. Like if this is practice, what you do in practice is you run drills. And drills are about the basics so that when you get in the game, you're not thinking, you're just acting, right? I've been working, I'm one of these COVID golfers. Have you heard of us? It's like, there's nothing to do for a few years, so we all learned to play golf. I was a very bad golfer, I've been working on it. And over time, what helps is like, you're not thinking so much about your swing, you're just kind of swinging a little bit more naturally and effortlessly, right? But with all the fundamentals that you worked out on the range, they always say to you like, don't try to fix your golf game on the course. Like it's too late by the time you're out there, you know. Fix it on the range when you're practicing. And so for us, what I'm trying to do just with these two talks building on each other is go back to some of these basic fundamental mindsets that I think are critical for us seeing the world clearly the way God wants us to see it. The story's important, not just because it's a nice story or it's kind of like, what the story is important for is it helps us to see reality as it is. C.S. Lewis said, I, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen. Not just because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Like it makes sense and sort of becomes the, the lens through which all of reality, all of a sudden all the pieces fall into place. And it's like, oh, that's what, we're a revealed religion, Christianity. There wasn't a bunch of guys that just sat around and like wrote this book and made it up for themselves. The whole predicate of this whole thing is that God has not dealt thus with the other nations. He has not shown them, right? Like how we're supposed to live, what actually happened, how we're supposed to think, like who he is. In his words and deeds, Jesus Christ reveals the Father, like he's supposed to give us an image of what God is like. That way, if we're ever tempted to believe that anything we've done or anything we didn't do or who we are, like anything limits, right, could separate us from the love of Christ. We can look at the cross and like Father talked about last night with St. Paul recognize, it's while we were still sinners that he did that. He didn't wait for us to be perfect or to figure it all out. He reached into and descended into our personal hell to resurrect from there. He's not afraid of it. He's not afraid of your past or your limitations. He's way more powerful than all of it. 
And so it's just important for us to reground in these principles so that we can see reality as it is. So I'm not here to wow you with like a lot of really like things you've never heard before. Because I, I just want to talk about the things that I think matter the most, which are the things we like all learned in second grade CCD and thought were too basic to ever come back to. There was a great story, Archbishop Fulton Sheen was meeting with a famous atheist, like a world-renowned communist leader. He would come to the United States, and so he wanted to meet with a Catholic figure, and so Archbishop Fulton Sheen was famous, and so he agreed to meet with him. And he recounts the story in his own autobiography called Treasure and Clay. And they have this long conversation, and this famous atheist is just ranting at him about the church and how silly it is and belief in God and flying spaghetti monsters or whatever, like the whole, the whole thing. And Fulton Sheen just sits and listens to him for a while. Let's him kind of get it all out like an hour. And then he stops. And this is one of the most learned theologians, one of the most articulate sort of men, you know. And he, and he listens and the guy stops. He says, are you done? And the guy said, yeah, that's enough. And Fulton Sheen says, let me tell you about the Blessed Mother. And the guy became Catholic like a year later, right? <laughs> like it's we think, you know, we got to like, the human heart's wired for God. So what I want to do is I want to start tonight with something I promised you I would, I would talk about tonight, which is a little bit about my story. And I, the only thing I lied about last night is that the details aren't that juicy. But it does reveal some of why I think what we want to talk about tonight, which is mission and the renewal of the church is so important. So I grew up and I, I kind of hand up and willing to admit that I'm a member of what has been called the millennial generation, the much maligned millennial generation, I should say. You may have heard of us. We love expensive coffees and avocado toast and a lack of fortitude. You know, this is who we are at our core, right? But, uh, in addition to that, uh, millennials also have left organized religion in previously uh, unknown droves, right? And the reason's kind of simple. We're the first generation, a Notre Dame sociologist noted, noted this, that could be called the first fully post-Christian generation. So to rewind, I'm from Chicago originally. We live in Denver, Colorado now. It's where we moved five years ago because Chicago doesn't have sunshine or mountains. And we like both of them. And so um, I grew up in the suburbs. We bounced around a little bit. My dad is from the south side, Polish enclave, back of the yards, like back of the stockyards, you know, that Chicago was built on kind of neighborhood, blue collar family, you know, both parents worked the night shifts kind of thing. And my mom is from the North Shore, uh, which is where all those like 80s movies were filmed, like Ferris Bueller's Day Off and stuff. She's from that area. Are you from there too? And so, you know, Cubs fans, Sox fans, it's a real like Romeo and Juliet, you know, Capulets and Montagues kind of thing. And 
they met and got married and both grew up in these good, you know, Irish Catholic, Polish Catholic families. And so we were very culturally Catholic. We were sort of like almost never missed mass type Catholics is how I would describe it, unless it was like vacation or we sort of didn't want to, you know what I mean? And I think they had both kind of fallen away a little bit in college or sort of figuring things out. But as they started to have kids, we're coming back to at least like a more practicing Catholicism. And then they went on a retreat when I was in second grade through a program in the Diocese of Joliet, where we were at at the time in Wheaton, Illinois, called Curcio. Here to Curcio. It's this retreat program uh, where they encountered, I think, like real Catholic community for the first time and a really like evangelization sort of encounter with Jesus moment. And it really changed them. They were like truly transformed uh, by this uh, retreat uh, to the point that we became, in my estimation, uncomfortably Catholic is how I would have put it at the time. Uncomfortably Catholic. So we, I mean, we were, we were, we were a daily rosary, you know, kind of family, much to my chagrin. And I, I don't know what it was like. There's a deep rebellion in me that to this day, I think our Lord is still working out. Uh, I don't know if I was just too old where the, the pagan had already like settled in to my heart too deeply, but it just, it really never took for me. I would like to tell my friends I was the black sheep of the family. They would come over for sleepovers in middle school and high school, and they would count all the religious uh, imagery and art, artwork on the walls. I remember Brian Beck coming up one, one, uh, to the, like, our upstairs room one year, and he would just look at me and he was like, 96, you know. So that kind of family, right? Mother Angelica always on the TV. Relevant radio always on the radio. Morning air. And, and it just really, I, I, I'm, to this day, I, I, I probably couldn't say if there was a, a lack of connection with it or a lack of belief in God, I think certainly I was like a kind of wrestling with certain questions. I remember asking my parents a lot, like, how did God make the world in six days? Like, where did the dinosaurs fit in? I was, you know, I don't know if there was some of that going on. I think more than anything, uh, what I realized looking back on it is I grew up in a post-Christian generation. So Archbishop Fulton Sheen said this in 1973. He said, we're living at the end of Christendom. So he said, See, he said, we're watching the death of it, right? Not Christianity, not the church, the gates of hell and love will prevail, right? But Christendom, which is the political, kind of cultural, economic, societal construct that had been created from a Christian imaginative vision. Like that's ending, and that's what's kind of going on in the world. Pope Francis has said the same thing. He said, it's not so much that today, just because of the technological revolution, that we're living in an age of change. We are, rapid change. But we're also living in a change of age. Here's what they mean. The early evangelization of the church is a borderline impossibility. Ordinary, uneducated people were so convinced that they watched their friend rise from the dead, 500 of them refusing to recant their story, lasting way longer than Watergate did, right, holding it all together, were able to somehow convince the entire civilized world, the ancient world, that their friend, this unknown backwater Jewish rabbi who had been killed by multiple political powers of his day very quickly into his ministry, like only a couple of years into his reign, and who himself throughout that time <coughs> had used every situation 
of influence that he had to alienate his followers. I'll give you an example. The height of his public ministry, he feeds 5,000 men, it says, meaning there's women and children too. There's like 20,000 people. A basketball arena's worth of people following him, uh, kind of hanging on his every word, wanting to hear what he's all about and what he wants to do. And he takes this chance, right, where he's got an army in front of him that can overthrow their oppressors to say to them this, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life within you. And they almost give him an out. They say like, yeah, totally. We're with you there. It's a beautiful metaphor, right? Like give us this bread always, right? Like we're, we're in, you know? You just fed us, we want more. He says, no, 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 you don't get it. He actually switches the verb he uses in Greek. If you're reading the original Greek. The word eat, they weren't getting it. It was too metaphorical, it's phago. It could be symbolic. It could mean, I can eat you up. Like you could, you know, you could take it all kinds of ways. It says, no, literally, amen, amen, I say to you, 20,000 people, height of my public ministry, unless you trogo my flesh, literally chew, munch my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no life within you. And they all realize what he means. They're like, this just became a cult and we're gone and they walk away. And at no point, if you're trying to start a movement, this is a very bad thing to happen. And at no point does he stop them. Does he say like, you don't get it, it's a metaphor. I'm the vine, you're the branches, eat my flesh. He instead turns to his friends, his best friends and says, are you gonna leave me too? Like this is it. I'm not kidding. This is how I'd like to be with you always to the close of the age. And Peter, my favorite words in scripture says to him, not, hey, I get it. Transubstantiation, like we already figured this one out. This is not a philosopher, Peter, right? As he made clear. He just looks at him and he says, to whom would we go? You alone have the words of everlasting life, right? Like we trust you. Like I'm in, I left everything, I'm all in, I'm sold out. Like I'm here for you always, no matter what. Right, it's only later that they understand what he means, right? So this guy who took every available opportunity in front of him to start a lasting movement and dropped a bomb in it, within 300 years is worshiped as God by the ancient world, the Roman Empire itself. It doesn't make any sense on human power alone. It doesn't make any sense. But this initial evangelization effort, ordinary, uneducated people, silver and gold I have not, but what I, I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus, rise, pick up your mat and walk, right? Like with the power of God armed with something different. The something different that's only possible when God actually takes over your life and when you surrender enough of the vital core of who you are to the power of God that he can actually change the world through you. And people look at you and say, that's something different. It doesn't make any sense. It's not of this world. Everyone else is making it up and it's fake and it's not real and it's just for influence and power. And there's something about you that no matter how many times we kill you, you just keep coming. Mother Teresa 
was not just a slightly more well-behaved person. They say when you met John Paul II, like you could feel when he walked into the room. He would groan inwardly in prayer. When he looked at you, it's like he could read to the depths of your soul. That's what a life surrendered to God looked like. And these apostles so surrendered to God uh, and, and everyone who was with them who saw Jesus rise to the dead changed the entire world. Changed the world in like two centuries. Doesn't make any sense outside of the power of God. And this initial evangelization of the church was so extraordinarily successful, unlikely though it was, that it baptized not just people, but a culture and an imaginative vision for the world. It gave a way of seeing things and looking at things that was rooted uh, in, in the Bible. It was a biblical worldview. And out of that worldview sprung an entire culture and amazing innovations, like things like uh, the university system. That's ours, right? And the hospital system. The scientific method. Things that didn't just happen in spite of a Christian worldview, but because of it, extraordinary advances. And that worldview at times so suffused cultures that the cultures themselves became wrapped up in it. The, the, the entire idea of a, of a festival, a holiday, was born out of the Catholic idea of feasts. On feast days, you needed to celebrate in the town square so nobody could work because we got to go party. Because St. Andrew died today. We're so weird. We've got one of his bones here. We got to go into the square and talk about it. And this culture for a very long time carried along the gospel. Where because culture, largely speaking, there's sinners in every age. I mean, also horrible, you know, people doing horrible things and all like but a worldview that was largely rooted in at least basic fundamental understanding in the gospel of like what a human person is and what love is and, and kind of like at least generally how we're supposed to live and organize ourselves and these things were rooted in the gospel. We call that Christendom. And what's ending today, what we live in, the change of age that Pope Francis is talking about is Christendom is dead. When you look at the world around us, when we look at the precipitous decline in Catholicism and organized religion and Christianity, it's because there's no longer a dominant imaginative vision in a culture that sort of keeps people rooted in organized religion. And there's downfalls to Christendom, right? It's easy to sort of be comfortable when all of us are just politely religious, right? We can sort of get like, we can rest on our laurels a little bit. And we, want, we don't want to be too radical, too sold out for the gospel because like, you know, we're all Catholic. Let's not worry about it. It's actually funny. I had this experience growing up because I was starting to get in a lot of trouble in middle school for a middle schooler, you know. And so my parents actually sent me to a Catholic high school, the local Catholic high school in Illinois, thinking it would sort of like straighten me out. It did not. 
And in fact, one of the weird things was, at least my faith uh, in public middle school was sort of like a unique identifier. I kind of liked wearing ashes. It was like me and the gym teacher. I grew up in Wheaton, Illinois. It's the evangelical sort of hub of the world. So I kind of loved like going to, going to school with ashes on my forehead because it was like, yeah, this is my thing, right? But, but in my Catholic high school, I was like, yeah, we're all this and none of us care about it. So let's not talk too loudly about it. And I remember it was my Baptist football coach who one day after, uh, he was from Tennessee, his name was Bobby. <laughs> and one day after school, <laughs> when we had all day, all, uh, all school mass, I remember he said to me, uh, he was kind of in a bad mood and I'm like the, you know, kind of talk to everybody, make everyone, you know, coach, what's going on? He said, I don't understand you Catholics, Glimkowski. I said, what do you mean? He said, what do you believe about that host up there? I didn't really know, to be clear. He said, you all believe that that's God. He said, and then I see the way you act in church, and I don't get how that could be the case. Ouch. So we're living at the end of Christendom. And the reason uh, we're watching such precipitous decline is because we're moving back to a context, a cultural context that has more in common with the ministerial missional situation of the early church than it does of 1950s American Catholicism or 1600s Florence, Italy, or any of these places, right? We're living in a world where the dominant culture isn't gonna push people toward faith. It's not gonna presuppose it. It's not gonna preach it publicly. It's not gonna, there was for a long time, what would happen is what happened to my parents, right? They went to college and they sort of fell away, but the family and the culture were like these, it's like bumper bowling. And they're kind of bouncing around, but there was a stickiness to, to Catholicism, to the culture that was going to sort of keep them rooted in the faith. They'd come back eventually, we knew, right? With my generation, it's not happening. Because that doesn't exist. And so for me growing up, it's not so much that I didn't believe in God. It's just in this culture, if you're not actively swimming upstream, you're just bobbing along with it downstream and downstream is not toward the practice of Catholicism. And so, you know, that led to kind of classic youthful hijinks. My sister was discerning uh, being a cloistered nun because of my very Catholic family and I was out partying on the weekends, right? And I got pretty good at football and football was a big part of my identity and was, was you know, three years on varsity and that's kind of all I cared about. And my mom, my beautifully Irish Catholic mother, Deb Glumkowski is a saint, would get increasingly worried till one summer she decided that she was gonna intervene and she signed me up to go on a bus 10 hours from Chicago to a town in the Ohio Valley called Steubenville for a youth conference with other Catholic teams. I had to miss football practice with youth group kids. 
I was horrified. It was a fate worse than death. I was clinging to the door of the bus. They, were, they had me by the legs, prying my fingers off one by one. And so I went and I uh, encountered there something I didn't expect. It was a witness to the gospel that was credible and believable and powerful. There was a speaker on the first night that all he did was just talk about why any of this mattered. And it shook me. What God had done in Jesus and what shook me was the message. Because to be honest with you, growing up, I hadn't heard that very often. I had heard what we were supposed to do, like every once in a while, a little bit of what we were supposed to believe. Honestly, for the most part, I just put cotton balls like on pieces of paper. We were one of these, Bishop Barron talks about like, you know, Catholic high schools that have like these chemistry textbooks that are like this and the religion textbooks that are like this. Like they're practically a coloring book for 16 year olds. Like that was my religion class, you know. So I didn't know a lot of what the church taught. As good of a Catholic family as I had, I think they were still figuring out a lot too and learning themselves. And all of a sudden I'm hearing this person talk about sort of a why that sits behind it all. And the pieces started to click in my head. And I think the most shocking kind of shattering part was his witness. This was a person who knew who he was who lived for something more for himself, who seemed to believe in something so powerfully that he didn't really care what you thought about him. He was totally free. And as an 18 year old kid, who just basically did whatever his friends thought was gonna be funny on any given day, that was incredibly challenging. To live so free, so boldly, in a knowledge of yourself and who you are, to me was like utterly alien. And this question started to form in the back of my mind. And it was this question. What if it's true? What if my mom and dad weren't making it up? What if it's not flying spaghetti monsters in the sky? What if it's true? What does that mean? And I was shaken by it. And so the next day I actually went to confession for the first time in a very long time. And I thought this priest was gonna be just like scandalized by my sins, you know? And you know what he said to me after I just divulged a year's worth of rebellion or two years worth of rebellion? He said what all priests say after they hear a really good confession for the first time in a long time. I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? As far as the east is from the west, so far have I put your sins from you, right? Don't consider the former things. Confession is not a punishment. You did bad and now you gotta come and talk about what you did bad. It's medicinal. It's how our father welcomes us home. So I went to confession and that night, uh, in the field house, they had an experience of Eucharistic adoration with a Eucharistic procession around the field house. We were kneeling on these just terrible floors. They were just shooting daggers into your knees the entire time for two hours as we were kneeling there. But I was gripped by this question, distracted from the pain in my knees by this wondering of like, what if it's true? And so as the Eucharist came close in this procession, I kind of uttered the first like genuine, sincere prayer from the heart of my entire life my 18 years of Catholic life when I said, 
God, if you're real, I'm open. And what transpired over the next period of time as I knelt there on that terrible floor is to this day sort of the defining moment of my life. The still point of the turning universe, T.S. Eliot called it. What Pope Benedict XVI said, as I said last night, right, being Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty ideal, but the fruit of an encounter with a person who gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. I knew exactly what he meant in that moment. God was no longer an idea or just a moral system. All the things my mom and the Pope had gotten together to decide that I couldn't do because those were all the fun things that I wanted to do or just some outdated ideology that didn't really make sense or just kind of how people used to organize themselves to kind of be repressed by, other people who wanted to stay in power. It was real. It was alive. There was a person who could be encountered in that tiny white house. All adventure was to be found there. And it shattered me. It absolutely shattered me. But what hung in the balance was this, my choice. I had a meeting with a guy uh, a couple weeks ago who is remarkably successful in all things, in business and in faith and in family and life, has given untold millions of dollars to the church to support incredible causes, launched projects that have impacted the church across the country has kids who have all grown up in the faith, married Catholics, grandkids that have all, and they've suffered as a family in beautiful ways. This is a daily mass, daily rosary, daily holy, holy hour kind of guy. And as we were sitting there talking over coffee, just catching up as we've gotten to know each other over the last couple of years, he said to me, the kind of thing you don't always hear over a cup of coffee with someone that you've watched uh, pray in, in adoration for hours at a time. He looked me right in the eyes and out of nowhere said this, do you know he used to be a drug dealer? I spat out my coffee all over him. I said, no. I said, yeah. I said, everything but heroin did it and sold it. He said, then God started to break into my life He said, I realized something that I wish everybody realized at some point in their life. God's not going to force you. Like the invitation to life and to life to the full, that's only to be found in a relationship with God, which means changing the trajectory of our lives, which means how we've been living as we've hopped around idols, chasing the things that we think are going to make us happy that we have to change in order to be in right relationship with him. We have to start praying and living virtuously and morally and becoming the thing that he's inviting us to be. And the grace will always be there and the grace will always invite and it'll start breaking into our hearts and the gift of faith to even take those steps itself is a gift. It's a sign God is already calling to us. But what we all need to realize is he's never going to force us. He's never going to force us. He always lovingly invites and encourages and challenges and wonders and questions and pokes and prods and says, come follow me and I'll take you places you never imagined, places you want to go, but it's a choice. The only thing standing between you and the incredible plan God has for you and not just for you, but for all of the people for whom you are God's plan A. 
for the life and life to the full that they're called to. Untold impact this man has had on the church, that has had on the church. And he was just a drug dealer that God started to poke at and say, I have a plan for you. I have images. My daughter is beautiful. I wish I could show you a picture. She's like the prettiest seven-year-old you've ever seen in your entire life. I'm in so much trouble. It keeps me awake at night. Thankfully, there's a lot of amazing convents out there. So glad. And as an 18 year old kid with painful knees on the floor of a field house in Steubenville, Ohio, Eva Glemkowski, with her beautiful face and prettier soul, was in God's mind. But he was never going to force me. Do you see what I mean? He was never going to force me. It was my choice. And so I, I chose uh, sometime thereafter to kind of give my entire life to God. And I started kind of following him and uh, doing my best and really experiencing conversion. I was going to daily mass and I was being changed in more ways than I knew <coughs> were possible. And as I started to grow in my faith, and started to find a peace and a life to the full that I knew I was made for flood my soul, I could only think about one thing. And it was all the guys on the football team, strangely enough. Because I realized they'd grown up at the same parishes I had grown up at. They'd gone to the same schools, they'd had the same CCD teachers, they'd had the same religion teachers, God bless them. And for some reason, God had reached in my life and turned the light on but I felt like I had found the purpose of life. Like, holy cow, this is it. People always say like, what's the meaning of life? It's a mystery. I was like, I think I figured it out. I don't think it's a mystery. I think it was revealed to us a long time ago. And I couldn't help but think of the 200 students that graduated from my high school with me. If 10 are still practicing the faith, I'd be shocked. I'd be shocked. And in some ways, honestly, through no fault of their own. St. Francis Xavier said one time, the only reason people aren't becoming Christian around here is because there's no one to make them Christians. We grew up and it's, it's not like anyone was really preaching to us the gospel. It wasn't until after my conversion that I really realized, oh my gosh, the church really like teaches this about the Eucharist. There's all these really valid logical reasons that that's what we teach. And this is this mystery. And it was like opening my eyes and unpacking so many things. It was like, where was this? We're a church in desperate need of renewal. Because we have the life and life to the full that only Jesus can bring in our moral teaching, in our sacraments, in our doctrine, in the practice of our life. And we are terrible, terrible at telling people about it. Just terrible. It reminds me a little bit of a story from scripture uh, in Judges chapter six, the story of Gideon. You might know Gideon. 
Gideon uh, lived at a really interesting time, right? During the rule of the judges, the Israelites were settled in the land now. They were ruled not yet by kings, but by judges. But they're kind of up and down still a little bit in their relationship with the Lord. And, And fascinatingly, when Gideon, when his story begins, it's a time when the Israelites have been overtaken by Midian. It says... Uh, In Judges chapter six, the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years and the hand of Midian prevailed over them. That phrase there, the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It doesn't mean general sin. It means a very specific kind of sin. It's a biblical euphemism for idol worship, specifically in this case, worship of the God Baal. Baal was a very common Middle Eastern sort of idol at the time. And Baal was worshipped in a very specific way. You might have heard this before. Do you know how Baal was worshipped? It was a statue with a big gaping mouth. And the way they would worship Baal is that they would actually take uh, and create fires in its mouth. And then they would take their infant children and feed them as an offering to the god Baal. To say, all right, Baal, you need to take care of us. We trust in you. And to show you that we trust in you, we're handing over our own progeny to you so that you'll take care of us and we'll have good things in the land. Now, what's fascinating about this is they start this worship of Baal, like immediately following on another experience when the Lord had rescued them from something. So it says, the verse before, now remember when we read scripture, we read it and it's got chapters and verses. They didn't write it with chapters and verses. Like the author of Judges wasn't like chapter six, Gideon, you know. We added that so we could read it. It was one big scroll. And so the verse immediately before is really important. Here's what it says. It's a song of praise, thanking God for rescuing them. And then it says, and the land had rest for 40 years. Rest is dangerous. True Sabbath rest, peace is a very good thing. What Sabbath rest shows is that we trust in God enough to stop working for a bit because we know he's going to take care of us. If you struggle the way I struggle to trust God enough to rest on the Sabbath, that's something we should allow the Lord to work on in our hearts to say, I don't have to work today because my strength doesn't come from my own work, but from the God who takes care of me. Amen. But so the Israelites, with their rest, what they do is they get lazy and they forget that God had rescued them from Egypt, that he was the one who took care of them. They are receiving pressure from the peoples all around them. They want to conform and fit in. And more than anything, they're afraid of Baal and his power. So they start slowly giving into idol worship to the point that after 40 years, they're taking their own children and setting them on fire to fit in. Isn't this how sin starts? Starts small, just a little comfortable. And so the people are oppressed by all the, the, the Midianites. And then finally, in verse 7, it says this. It describes... You know, the the Midianites are taking all their food, all their crops, everything. And then says in verse seven, when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And the prophet just basically says, I'm the Lord. I'm the one who took you out of Egypt. You need to remember that. And I'm going to show you. 
So there's a few lessons that I want to pull from the story in a second. So I want you to note that for a second. The sons of Israel cry out to the Lord. The Lord comes to them and sends them a prophet, a messenger. And then immediately the Lord responds. How does the Lord respond? Verse 11, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak at Ephra, which belonged to Joash, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press. Why is Gideon beating out wheat in the wine press? It's not where you do that. I don't know, you're maybe not that into agriculture. You make wine in the wine press. Bit of an ag guy myself. Why would you do it in the wine press? Well, one, you don't have any grapes. You're so poor that you can't make wine, so it doesn't really matter if you ruin your wine press. Second, a wheat threshing floor was out in the open because once you thresh the wheat, everything that remained, the wind would blow it away. What's the problem of being in the open? He has to hide. Whereas a wine press dug into the ground. It's a great place to hide from the Midianites. He's terrified. The, the core part of this story is fear. The Israelites, afraid of Baal, start worshiping him. Taken over by the Midianites, they run to the hills and they hide away out of fear. Everything's so bad out there. We got to hunker down and batten down the hatches and just kind of preserve what we have. We got to hide in the wine press because God can't possibly save us from this. So we just need to take the little that we can and kind of have it here in the wine press, right? So the Lord comes to him and he says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. You're supposed to read that and be like, what? Gideon responds like this, please, sir, if the Lord's with us, why is all this befallen us? Like, where were you, Lord? He says, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the, I'm the least in my family, the youngest son of the poorest family in Manasseh, hiding, uh, threshing his wheat in the wine press. And the Lord comes to him and sees you mighty man of valor. The first lesson I want you to get from this story, because I think these lessons are important for us. This is the inspired word of God, not just the retelling of historical tales. And it tells us something of what, how I think God wants to work to bring about renewal in our church today. The first thing, what did it take? What started this movement of God saving the people? The people cried out to him. They were finally done trusting themselves and they repented and cried out to him too. He goes to Gideon and what he sees in Gideon is what Gideon can become. He doesn't see him as he is or where he's at. He has a different plan from his life. He sees him as a mighty warrior, which is what he's about to become, right? What happens is Gideon believes God, terrified, complaining the entire time, doesn't really matter. God doesn't care if you complain every step of the way there as long as you go. And he goes and he actually throws down the statue of Baal. And all of the people turn on him immediately. The Israelites, like their, their own people who used to worship God are now so mad at him for overthrowing the statue that they turn on Gideon. Gideon doesn't care. He goes up into the hills and there he calls an army to himself. He sends out word to everybody, send an army, 30,000 men flock to him. And the Midianites, recognizing that an armed force is gathering, gather in the valley below. And it says innumerable people there, like countless hundreds of thousands of people are there. And they're going to attack the Israelites who are up on the hill. And God comes to Gideon and he says to him, you have too many men. 
And Gideon says, no, I don't. He says, you have too many men. Ask them if any of them are afraid. If any of them are afraid, send them home. So Gideon asks, how many of you are afraid? 20,000 of them raise their hands right away. And so he sends them home. 10,000 are left. God comes to him. They're about to attack the Midianites. And he says, you have too many men. Gideon says, no, I don't. God says, you have too many men. Go to the river and those who drink the water like a normal person by scooping it up with their hands, send them home. You get to keep the ones who lap it up with their mouths. We call them today idiots. (laughs) And so it's Gideon left with 300 idiots. And he's got no hope, no shot. And so what he does is God puts an inspired idea in his head and they actually trick the Midianites. They surround the camp. They create all kinds of noise. It convinces the Midianites that they're under attack. They wake up from their tents and they actually all kill each other. Gideon drives them away. The third lesson we're supposed to take from this story about renewal. One, it begins when we cry out to God and recognize that he's our only hope. Two, It starts to begin when we undergo the path of personal transformation in response to God's call for who we're going to be, not who we are right now. Mother Teresa wasn't Mother Teresa when she received her call. She became that because she surrendered her life entirely for God. She stopped just participating in polite religiosity, just doing church and decided that a surrendered life to God to be sold out completely to him was better than whatever plan she had no matter where it took her. And three, the third lesson on real renewal is that renewal is a result of God's power. And he's gonna show up as soon as we admit that that's true. The reason God cut their number down to 300 should be obvious to us. Because if they won the battle with 30,000, even against 200,000, They would have thought that they did it on their own strength, even if that wasn't true. And 40 years later, they would have been having the same exact problem. But with 300, they're required to be a little bit more ingenious and more than anything, like God said when the prophet came to them, when they cried out to him, they're gonna finally believe that it's his power. Brothers and sisters, I think that God is doing something incredible in our church right now in terms of renewal. I truly believe that he is. Like I said yesterday, I think it's because we finally recognize from where the world is at and where the church is at, one, that we need it, uh, and two, that it's gonna be him and his power. We're willing to actually rely on him to bring it about. But I think it's gonna take us actually crying out to God and relying on his plan and his path of personal transformation to bring it about. I think we're living in a moment where God wants to do something new and powerful in his church, but he's only gonna do it if we open up and surrender and respond. 
The bishops have called for this Eucharistic revival over the next three years. And what people don't seem to understand is that this call is certainly to a revival of faith in Jesus in the Eucharist. 30% of Catholics say they believe in the core doctrine of the church. That's not a pulled muscle, that's a broken spine. I don't know how we can fulfill our mission to be salt and light to the earth if the, the thing that we're confected out of, the reality that actually constructs this church, only like 30% of Catholics even think that that's happening. That's crazy. But even more than that, even deeper than that, what the bishops are calling for, what they're prophetically inviting the church to, participate in all together from the most devout Catholic to the one who's still just figuring it out or just entering the church at Easter this year, is it's a revival of our inner life and of our mission as church through Jesus in the Eucharist. We talked about it yesterday. What does the church exist for? The father from all history, when he lost his children, refused to give up on us and did everything he could to the point of death to bring us home. The life and life to the full that he alone can bring, he sent the church to do. When Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, he says this. His apostles ask him, Lord, you've been talking about this kingdom that's going to rescue people from sin and death, that's going to make them more than they ever thought possible, that's going to transform them and bring them back to something greater than was even possible in Eden. And we've seen you do a lot of things. You even rose from the dead. And we're at this hill outside of Jerusalem. It looks like you're about to leave, but I still don't see a kingdom. Where's the kingdom that you promised? And he says, it's not for you to know times or seasons because they're asking him a when question, right? And he re rebukes them in the sense, he says, I'm not going to tell you when. But he does answer their question. He says, I will tell you who. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit falls on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The church does much, celebrates much, teaches much, but exists for one singular purpose. The church exists, Pope Paul VI said, and even Jelly Nunziandi in 1976, to evangelize. Not to make Catholics just feel comfortable with themselves, but to seek and save the lost. You've never met a mere mortal. Everyone you've ever met will live forever. And they are destined, desired, needed by a God who loved them so much that he created the universe and every star in the sky just so that they could exist. That's the person who checks out your groceries at the grocery store. And they need what we have. They need what we have. And we've been called. Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit that will last. I'm not going to tell you when, but I will tell you who. You will receive power. Not just for your own sake in your own life, but for the sake of them. For every soul that will ever live so that they can discover who they're made to be. That's why there's a St. Anne's in Capel, Texas. And we've had too many Catholics like me grow up in this faith and never realize that that's the point of it all. And we have too many people in the world living lives of quiet, lonely, isolated desperation who don't know who they are and what they're made for. The reason there are no Christians here is because there's no one to make them as such. And so what we need 
is revival. This church needs revival. And the uncomfortable and unfortunate fact is that you're the plan. There is no strategic plan or Gantt chart sitting in a bishop's office somewhere that's like the 10 steps to fix all the problems. You're it. Gideon was it. When the people finally cried out to God, he responded by going to Gideon, seeing in Gideon who he could be for the sake of the world. Our world is hurting and our church is hurting. And you and I are the cavalry. There's no one else coming. You're it. And that thought might be terrifying, jarring, disappointing, maybe even a little bit, I feel sometimes. Certainly there had to be a better plan than me. God doesn't care. Hail you mighty warrior, you mighty man of valor. Threshing weed in the wine press. I'm not wrong that the world is hurting, am I? Am I wrong that the church is hurting? Has God given up on us? Do you think he's capable of doing something new? That requires that we surrender. That we believe that and that we surrender. And so the opportunity we want to have is Father Edwin's going to bring in Jesus in the Eucharist again. He's going to expose them on the altar. And then the parish has set up opportunities for you all to receive prayer. And the prayer could be for anything, right? Provided it's for you. Don't just come up and say, I need prayer for my... You're the plan tonight. Where does God want to meet you? What do you need? Where are you at? Where's your hurt? Where's your pain point? Where's God calling you, wanting to meet you and invite you? And in particular way, what do you need in your life to have a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that you like Mother Teresa, like John Paul II, like St. Peter, all weak, frail, broken people in so many ways, they would tell you part of God's plan for the salvation of the entire world can be unlocked in a new way in the gifts and in the promptings and in the desires and in the holiness and in the greatness that he's calling you to so you can do that. It's not for you to know times or seasons, but you'll receive power, he says. And what I would encourage you to do as you go to one of these opportunities for prayer, these people are kind of getting ready to be available to pray with you. What I would encourage you to do is to be open and surrender your heart in a new way to just what God wants. Like maybe let that be your prayer and your intention as you go to prayers to just say like, all right, Lord, what do you have? I'm open. If you're real, I'm open. <laughs> and let the trajectory of your life from this day forward in a small way or in a big way, take on a new path into new mission, into greater intimacy and closeness, greater surrender. People are here to walk with you in that moment of prayer. And Jesus is going to be here on the altar. So don't be afraid 
put out into the deep. You can't lose what you don't put in the middle. You can keep your chips here all you want. But as an old poker movie said, you can't win much either. Life with Christ is a wonderful adventure. I'm certain that he has a new plan for you in some way. I encourage you to receive prayer tonight. But first, please join me in kneeling as, as we welcome the King of the universe. The St. Anne vision is to bring people to Jesus, form disciples, and send them to transform the world. To learn more about St. Anne, go to stannparish.org. God bless.